0: Friends, what a joy it is to be back with you in the pulpit. I have been uh, away for the last four weeks. I want to thank God for the uh, way the Lord provided uh, preachers uh, to bring God's Word in this congregation while I was gone. I want to thank God for uh, our Pastor Taylor Worley, for our Pastor Ryan uh, uh, McGill, and then for our guest preacher last week, John uh, Fulmer. If you have missed over the last four weeks, you are not with us. I encourage you to go online and listen to the sermons that have been preached by these faithful brothers. I have been greatly encouraged by each and every one of them. I listened to the sermons while I was gone. I thank God for the faithfulness of, God's, of, the, of the preaching of God's Word in this congregation. Uh, what a joy it is to know that uh, even when I'm out, God's Word is faithfully preached at Parkers Baptist Church. That's a great joy. Friends, I recognize on a Sunday like this, like Mother's Day, there are some among us who are visiting us, uh, particularly because you have desired bless your mother, uh, and come, and perhaps by surprise or by early planning, you have chosen to worship the Lord in the church where your mother attends. Uh, We are grateful for every one of you this morning who are visiting us, uh, and if you have come to visit, particularly because your mother is a member in our congregation, we want to pray that God blesses you and uh, and your family, and especially your mother. This morning, as we are looking at God's Word, I encourage you to open the Bible to Isaiah chapter 56. We are going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 12. As you're turning your Bibles there, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you may grab a Bible provided in a chair in front of you, and you may find this passage on page number 616. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of the pew Bibles and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it and read it. And if you have any questions on anything from God's Word, we'd love to uh, talk to you about it. Here is God's word for our hearts this morning. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps His hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters i will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the foreigners who join themselves to the lord to minister to him to love the name of the lord and to be his servants everyone who keeps the sabbath and does does not profane it and holds it fast holds fast my covenant these i will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings Their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field, come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own ways, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say. Let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. Tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father who are in heaven, you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed your word and your revelation to us. You have told us about your salvation. And this morning as we are gathered to hear from you, through the preaching of your word, we pray that you would open our hearts. Father, we pray that you'd use these words. And we pray that these words would be not mere human words, but that you would speak to our hearts in a way that draws us to yourself. We pray for the glory of the name of Christ to be exalted among us, as your word, O oh Lord, is preached. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Friends, the passage we just read is the beginning of the final third major section of the book of Isaiah. We have been going through this book for almost 40 plus weeks, and we're coming now to the last third, last major uh, uh, part of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 55 was like a a wrap-up for the second major part of the book. And chapter 55 ended with a great promise that God will restore His people and that God will totally transform them. We saw that promise of, of, of transformation. We saw that promise of restoration uh, in the last two verses of chapter 55. And I hope that as you are listening to the sermon, you keep the Bible open and, and follow along. In the last two verses of chapter 55, God gave a a beautiful promise and a picture of what that transformation and restoration entails. God said to his people, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And then there's a beautiful picture. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This was a picture that God would indeed transform His creation and the people that He has redeemed. Well, in chapter 56, God wants to address what this restored community looks like. And as we look at the following chapters beyond chapter 56, which we'll look at next week, God will show us that this restored community is far from the ideal that he has for them. And what we're going to see in the rest of, of the book of Isaiah from chapter 56 onward, we will see the back and forth between the ideal and the actual. Now when we see this difference between the ideal and the actual, it is not supposed to lead us into uh, so, sort of hopelessness that we often sort of have to, to go by and recognize, well, this is the ideal, but i got to settle for the real. That's not the kind of thing that, 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 the, that the rest of Isaiah will want us to see. The difference between the ideal and the actual is to draw us to get closer to the ideal. It's not to leave us in complacency to say, well, this is just what I have to put up with in the, in the moment, but rather is to pull us out and try to help us see the stark difference between what God calls for His people to be and often what they actually are. As we look at this passage this morning, we want to look at our restored community. And we're going to see the, the ideal and the actual even in our passage today. We're going to look at three characteristics of the community that God restores. Three characteristics of the community that God restores. And the, the three characteristics are The community that God restores lives anticipating God's salvation. Lives anticipating God's salvation. The community that God restores puts aside prior dividing walls. Puts aside prior dividing walls. Thirdly, the community God restores follows spiritually qualified leaders. Follows spiritually qualified leaders. Let's look at each of these points and see how God speaks to His people and describes the way he wants them to live now that he has promised to restore them. A restored community lives anticipating God's salvation. We see this in verses 1 and 2 in the passage we just read. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil in these verses i wonder if you see there's two commands there's a motivation and there's there's a blessing let's look at these commands at the motivation and the blessing that god pronounces keep justice and do righteousness these are the commands now you may wonder ah here are the commands again old testament language just focusing on commands Well, for Isaiah, particularly the command for justice and righteousness are important. If you remember the way the book of Isaiah began, in in chapter 5, there was this picture in which God describes His people as being a vineyard. A vineyard that God has taken great care of. A vineyard that God has taken care to protect, to water. And then God was looking for fruit. And the vineyard did not produce good fruit. Chapter 5 It says the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And God looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The reason why Israel and Judah were exiled in the first place was because they failed to live out the justice and the righteousness that God required from them. And now as we come to the last section of the book of Isaiah, God's desire for His people has not changed. God wants them to live out justice and keep righteousness. Friends, ask yourself, is there an area of your life where you are not pursuing justice and righteousness? Now, keeping justice and righteousness can be a bit misleading to us if we're not careful. When God says, keep justice and do righteousness... He does not mean doing the righteousness that we think in our own eyes as righteous. He's not talking about what's, what's just in our own eyes. No, keeping justice and doing righteousness means to pursue what is just in God's eye, what is righteous in His eye. It is easy for us to think that what we are doing is right, And if we remember what God said in Isaiah 55, in the earlier chapter, the previous chapter, God said to His people, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. It is possible, dear friends, that we can even think that we pursue righteousness or justice, but we do it in our own way. We do it according to our own standard. And when God calls for justice and righteousness, He calls for that which matches His standard, His righteousness and justice. Oh friends, this means that God's calling out to keep justice and righteousness is a call to live out His ways, not ours. And God also tells us the motivation. Why should we? Why should we live out justice and righteousness? He says to His people, "Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation will come, and my deliverance will be revealed." Now in this passage. When God speaks of his salvation and his deliverance, He is not talking about what you and I would typically think about conversion. That's not what he's talking about here. In this passage, God is speaking to the people whom he promised to, to bring out of the exile, and he says, my deliverance, my salvation is going to be f- fully revealed. This is talking about the, the final consummation of the salvation that God promises. God's salvation and deliverance refer to that future promise where God will indeed bring His people totally, fully out of exile. It had an initial initial fulfillment when God's people were physically brought out of Babylon. But as we read the rest of the Bible, we realize that was a pattern. That was a pattern of a greater salvation that God was going to accomplish. Not simply for, from the land of, of Babylon, but from sin and death. And that salvation, dear friends, is an experience that, that many of us this morning, I hope and pray, have already experienced in its initial stages. As, we, as God has convicted us of our sin, as God has opened our eyes to recognize the bondage to death, the bondage to our rebellion, and we need God's grace to free us from the bondage of sin and death, friends, we still live in a land of dying, we still live in a land where our, our sinful nature is still with us. And we are looking forward to a, a f- the final consummation of the, of the deliverance of God's salvation when even the presence of sin will be taken away from us. The power of sin has been broken. The penalty of sin has been paid for all those who have turned to the Lord in Christ to be saved. But the presence of sin is still with us. We look forward to today when Christ and God The Holy Spirit will return to take us home to Him and bring the final consummation of that salvation. But until that day comes, until the final salvation, the the final manifestation of God's salvation comes, how should God people, how should they live? God says, live by keeping justice and living out in righteousness. This means, dear friends, that the nearness of God's salvation should be a motivation why we continue to keep living justly. We continue to keep pursuing righteousness. Have you ever considered that the nearness of God's final salvation should be a motivation, should stir our hearts for continuing to grow in godliness, for continuing to live in righteousness? And this is not just a, a, a truth that Isaiah brings out. The Apostle Paul brings a similar point in Romans 13. He said, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, the more we realize that God's salvation is closer and closer, the more we should be zealous to cast off the works of darkness. To practice injustice or to whatever is not right before the Lord, cast them off. The Apostle Paul goes on in that very passage and says, So then, cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. Do you hear how the Apostle Paul takes this truth that Isaiah built and in, in, in wrote in, in Isaiah 56? And it says, the more you see the salvation of the Lord getting nearer and nearer, the more you should be zealous in growing, in desiring to live a life of godliness. I love how John Calvin said, the nearer we are to God, so much more powerfully ought we to be excited to the practice of godliness. I wonder if you qualify or gauge your excitement for living a godly life to be a good barometer for how close you are to the Lord. God not only commands His people to keep justice and live righteously, He not only gives a motivation for it, but in verse 2, He declares a blessing upon the man who actually does this. And in verse 2, the blessed man who does this is also described as a man who keeps the Sabbath. And if you notice in this chapter, the the, the promise or the the calling to keep the Sabbath is mentioned three times. And you may wonder, what do we do with this blessing, with this command to keep the Sabbath? For us New Testament believers uh, who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we need some explanations here. In the Old Testament, God indeed called His people to keep the Sabbath. Saturday, as a day of rest from their toils. But keeping the Sabbath was not merely an outward ceremony, even in the Old Testament. Keeping the Sabbath in the Old Testament was a very important part and a key part of worshiping God. Keeping the Sabbath meant that one had to organize their entire week to be different. So that one day a week, they could actually not work. It wasn't just about what you do on that one day. It's about reorganizing the rest of the week, so you can put, put, day, uh, put the day of Saturday to be away from work. The Sabbath keeping for the Jewish people was not just about the Sabbath, it was about one's entire life needing to be organized by the principle of resting and trusting on what God said. When Jesus came, He fulfilled the rest to which a Sabbath was pointing to. So we as believers uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus, we no longer observe Saturday as a Sabbath day. And such an observance is not a key to our worship of God. But friends, just because we no longer are called to put aside Saturday as a day of worship does not mean that the spiritual realities to which the Sabbath was were pointing are somehow gone and we don't need to worry about it reforming our lives to reflect the worship of God continues to be a part of what it means to follow God through Jesus. I love how one commentator said, the Sabbath is viewed not as an end in itself, but as a sign that the whole of life was to be lived in submission to God. Well, friends, we may may not observe Saturday as a Sabbath day because in Jesus, He is our true rest. But friends, The submission to God, the joyful reorganizing of our lives so that we live for the glory of God, not just one day a week, but all of of the week, is still part of what it means to worship the Lord. Friends, I wonder if you find this kind of life that reorganizes itself for the sake of God all week, not just one day. I wonder if if you find this kind of life to be a blessing. I wonder if you see yourself... Being blessed by God to be enabled to live such a life that anticipates his coming salvation I wonder if, if that's, that's not a blessing for you it's more like a drudge more like a, like a hard work that you just you're not excited about Now friends, I understand it's, it's oftentimes hard work to our sinful nature and oftentimes our, our sinful nature must be put aside but I wonder if if in your mind, in your heart, you trust and believe what God says in His Word, a blessed is the man who lives this way. A restored community lives anticipating God's salvation. But there's a second characteristic of a restored community. A, car- a restored community puts aside prior dividing walls. We see this in verses 3 to 8. Verses 3 to 8, God declares that He is gathering Together, his people, and the people that he's gathering are a very mixed bunch. Now, if God was gathering people who are just similar to one another, it'd be easy to figure out how they would live together in a community. And may I say, even then, it's still not easy. But it might be easier because we're used to living together in the same community with the people who are like us. But God declares in this passage that the people whom he gathers in his new community are not similar. They're made of foreigners. They're made of eunuchs. They're made of outcasts. Look at verse 8, the last one. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Friends, have you considered that God is not gathering merely the socially acceptable people? This means that the grounds on which God gathers us are not the same grounds on which society thinks about gathering people. In verses 3 to 7, God addresses the fears of people who think they don't fit in among God's people. Do you know people who might have these fears? fears of not fitting in, I'm afraid that this fear is still with us today much more than we are willing to acknowledge it or be aware of it. Friends, have you considered that the people who don't have the fear of fitting in may be totally oblivious to the people who actually do have the fear of fitting in? And in this passage, God is aware of those fears. Friends, if if any of you this morning have that fear, I want to let you know that God is aware of your fear. But in this passage, God is bringing out and addressing the fears of those who feel like they they don't fit in to speak not only to their hearts, but to speak to the hearts of the entire community who is called to embrace the foreigners and the eunuchs and the outcasts. In verse 3, both the eunuchs and the foreigners had had some very... Real fears. Notice the fears that God exposed in them in verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Notice the fears that these two categories. These are not the only categories, but these are the ones that, that are addressed here in our passage. The 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 foreigner fears that God would keep people separated between the nationals and the foreign ones. That that, that somehow the foreigners would be second-class people among God's people. That they would have different worship services for the foreigners than the nationals. The eunuchs, um, they fear that they are useless among God's people, for they could not contribute to the physical multiplication of God's people. So they say, oh, I'm afraid I'm just a dry tree. Notice how God addresses each of these fears. In verses 4 and 5, he addresses the the eunuch. In verses 6 through 7, he addresses the foreigner. In verses 4 and 5, he says to the eunuch, and, and it specifies not all eunuchs, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, the eunuchs were forbidden to enter the assembly of the Lord. But God promises that when He is restoring His people, the eunuchs will no longer be forbidden. Quite the opposite. God will not only welcome them in, but will give them a lasting name. Eunuchs could no longer prolong their names past their lives because they were eunuchs. They could could no longer have children who would carry the name and the heritage of the family because they were eunuchs. But God says that He will give them a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. Friends, the identity we receive when we turn to the the Lord is worth more than the identity that our family can perpetuate for us. The identity that God gives to us is greater than what our physical family can do for us. Then verse 6 or 7, God addresses the fears of the foreigners. He says, the foreigners, and again, it's not all foreigners. There's a subset. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them, joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples what a promise in these verses god not only welcomes the foreigners who desire to commit themselves to god god also assures them that they will belong to the people of god joyfully joyfully that they will not be kept separate And the motivation for this inclusion, God says, is because his house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. Friends, even in the Old Testament, God's intent was to form a people who would have a heart for the nations. And by their praying together, when they gathered together in God's house, they would show God's design to bring his salvation to the people's of, of every language and tribe and nation, so that they too might become worshipers of God. The temple, the, the house of the Lord was not supposed to be just a place for national Israel. It was supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. Friends, we have been called to be a praying people. Today, in our, as, as our service will be dismissed, when you will go out, we want to give a gift to each family. A little book called a Call to Prayer, written by, written by J.C. Ryle. We encourage you to use that book to grow you and to grow one another in the call to prayer. Why? Because not only what well, we gather together, when we, when we gather here together, we're not only called to worship the Lord through song or hearing preaching, but also through prayer. That's why in the evening service, we devote ourselves to be a people who gather to pray. And we want to encourage you and equip you to be growing in the call to prayer. But God makes it very specific. The call to prayer for his, for his house is a call not only for their personal needs, is a call not only for their ethnic people's needs, but for all people's. Now, friends, we may not have any objections to praying for the nations, for all people. We may, we may embrace that objection or that, that challenge easily. But would we welcome the answer that God gives the prayer for all nations? Would we welcome when people, when God would bring the foreigners in? This is a challenge that God addresses to his people in the book of Isaiah. When the foreigners will come in, will God's people welcome them? If you go to the book of Acts. At one point, the apostle Paul went to the temple, and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders wanted to punish Paul. Why? On the accusation that he brought Greeks temple by the time jesus comes the jews are still not listening to this command that the foreigners who join themselves to the lord should be welcomed should be embraced should be integrated friends have you considered that god does not gather those who think they can live with one another god is not gathering together only the people who think that they can live with one another in one community God actually is telling, is gathering people not based on affinity groups. Have you ever considered that our social differences are never an obstacle to God to gather His people? And God is never interested to bring in only those who already feel comfortable with one another? The Jewish people had a hard time embracing the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord. At least some did. And we are called, and God says even in Isaiah, to the foreigners, He wants them to be integrated, welcomed in the, among the people of God. God's strategy to call out those who think they don't fit in, He brings them into a new restored community, and He says, now live together. Live together. If that's how God gathers His people, He has some significant implications for us as we live as a church, even in 21st century America. We should not seek to build our community based on what we have socially in common with one another. Oh, friends, how easy it is to think about building God's church based on affinity groups. We easily fall into thinking that uh, if we can just figure out what people have in common, socially speaking, then we can help them get together more easily, befriend one another, And if the church can just be a cluster of of good friendships based on what people already have in common, socially speaking. Now, can you imagine if in the Old Testament, the foreigners were told that they must have their own church service? That's going to be separate from the Jewish service? Or can you imagine if the eunuchs had their own church service and the foreigners or the outcasts had their own separate services? God did not say, just let different gatherings do their own different services, use their own music style they prefer so that they can have a better sense of community with one another because they have enough differences already. We don't need to put more differences. So let's just create churches based on their affinity groups. Oh, no, friends. God's design was exactly the opposite. He said, I want to gather the people who have nothing in common. And I want to tell them you're all going to be one restored community. We as a church should be a place where anyone who seeks to worship God in truth should be welcomed, and we should be intentional in seeking out to discuss any fears that people may have about not being able to fit in. Friends, if God is addressing the fears of those who don't think they can, they can fit in, we should do the same. For those of us who might feel we already fit in, we may not realize that those who don't have that feeling have certain struggles some may voice them, some may not just because you feel like you are able to fit in well doesn't mean that the person next to you is able to have the same feeling and I would encourage you take it give it the initiative take the initiative just to ask him how do you f- how do you think you're fitting in are there any ways any fears you have about feeling you're still apart separated God cares for how the foreigners fear God deals with their fears and if God has a heart for their fears we should do this too this means also dear friends the longtime members I have ch- want to have a challenge for you longtime members who already have good established relationships in this congregation don't be satisfied That you are already, that you already have your plate of relationships filled up. Seek those who have been joining our congregation in the recent years. Don't be satisfied that you already have, you have your plate full of of old friendships. Consider beginning some new ones. Consider reaching out to the new ones as well. The work of including those who are different than us takes work takes intentionality. It calls us to get out of our comfort zones. It means that instead of going with the same group of friends to lunch on Sundays after church, we intentionally seek out those who have recently joined the congregation or recently have been visiting. Friends, we live in a time when our society shows signs of being divided in deeper ways than we actually thought are still around us. Our divisions grow deeper on political issues And on racial issues. And as a church, we must fight for making sure that anyone who seeks God and commits himself to or herself to the Lord finds a safe and welcome haven among the people whom God has restored. We must take the initiative to assure ourselves that those who are different than us are welcome. That we understand how they think like, what they might be coming from their fears, their expectations, and know that some of some of that conversation, some of those conversations might be difficult to hear. We should not assume that just because we fit in, others feel the same way. God here takes the challenge to address those who feel like they don't fit in. We should do the same. Third reality, a third characteristic of the community that God restores is that they follow spiritually qualified leaders. In the last chapter, last part of the of the chapter we read verses 9 to 12, it may feel like it's a new section. What does this have to do with what just went on beforehand? And it is a new section in some ways. God exposes the the reality that his people are still not living the way he calls them to live. If in verses 1 through 8, God describes some of the ideals of what He wants them to be like, in in verse 9 through 12, and then in the next chapter, God is calling out the beasts to come and devour the land. And you may wonder, wait, in verse 8, God said, I will gather yet others to Him. In verse 9, He says, He's gathering the beasts to come and devour His people. This doesn't sound like... A God who gathers, and yet both parts are coming out of the same God. What's going on here? The reality, of what's going on here, is that in actuality, the people of God continued to follow leaders who had no business of leading God's people, uh, physically speaking. God exposes in verses nine to twelve irresponsible leadership. God addresses the beast of the field and, and the beast of the forest, and he tells him to come and devour his people. Why? Because of the irresponsible leadership of his people. Israel will return from Babylon, but their leadership is still going to suffer from irresponsible leaders. So here God exposes that their leaders continue to be fully responsible for the situation that the people are continuing to go in. They continue to be misguided, and the leaders are responsible. But you may wonder if the leaders are responsible, if it's a leader's fault, why is God calling the beasts of the field to come and devour the nation if it's a leader's fault? Well, here's why. Because ultimately, it is the people who follow irresponsible leaders. It is the people who, ha- who are following leaders who should have never been put there in the first place. So here in these verses, we get to see How God exposes irresponsible leadership. In verse 10, we see God says, His watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The descriptions of Israel's leaders is very sad. And it looks anything but like the leaders of a restored community. To say that the watchmen are blind means that they don't have the ability to see danger coming. And thus they can't warn the people. And God gives a picture that's worth a thousand words. He says, Israel's leaders are like silent dogs that cannot bark. Now, today in our society, when we love having dogs as pets, this may be a wonderful description. But in ancient times, the use of dogs was to protect the property, was to protect, to help the owners know when danger was coming. So having a dog that can't bite, is literally to have a useless dog. He can't fulfill his job. And here, God says about the leaders of Israel, they are silent dogs. They, are, they can't bark. Often today, God's people may find themselves drawn more easily to leaders who only encourage and don't speak up when danger approaches. Now, don't misunderstand the ministry of encouragement and the ministry of 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 having a gentle spirit are important aspects of any spiritual leader. But if, if that's all it is, and there's no sense of, of having the ability to correct, having the ability to discern error and, and bring someone back on the right path, friends, any leader who, who, doesn't, who doesn't have that quality is in deep danger as well. Th- this comes in the New Testament, the book of Titus, one of the biblical qualifications for an elder, he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's ask yourself do you want leaders to watch over you whose eyes are blinded or whose mouths cannot call out when there is danger? When we look for elders, among other things, we should consider whether an elder candidate has the ability to discern error either in doctrine or in Christian living and to bring godly correction, in a godly way. Friends, ask yourself, if, if any of you are visiting us this morning, are you in a church? Are you belonging to a church where the pastors, the leaders of that church never call out danger? Never speak about wayward ways. You might be in a church where the leaders of that church are like, like the silent dogs of Isaiah who can't bark. That's very dangerous. Consider carefully. You are responsible for the leaders that you follow. You are responsible for the leaders that you choose to listen to and to put yourself under their leadership. Consider carefully. Oh, the description goes on. Verse 11. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, All in all, one and all. The leaders of Israel have other problems than blindness and inability to speak out. While they lack clear sight, while they lack the ability to bark, while they lack the ability to speak, they don't lack the appetite to fulfill themselves. They're never content with what they have. And more so, they're doing, they're doing what the entire nation is doing. Earlier in Isaiah 53, uh, the prophet described God's people as having turned, we each have turned like sheep to our own ways. And now God says these leaders have turned to their own way. What a sad description. In verse 12, come, they say, let us get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. In this last verse, the leaders prove to be unworthy, not because they consume wine or strong drink, Their problem in this verse is twofold. They're very optimistic first. They're very optimistic. They think about tomorrow, that it will be great beyond measure. Everybody likes to follow an optimistic leader. Everybody likes to follow a leader who can paint a bright future for tomorrow. Everybody likes to, to follow, to have leaders who just, who help people give a vision of how, how great the future will be for them. Friends, who doesn't like such leaders? How often, dear friends, even churches fall for the sugar-coated optimistic leaders who promise a better future. Yet, these leaders have a second problem. Not only are they unrealistically optimistic, they're pitifully separated from what God had just said. God said, God is calling out the beasts. God called out the beasts to come and devour the people. And the leaders, they're giving out a bright future. Oh, friends, they should have, they should have given a, a message of warning. They should have been in tune with what God is saying, with God's plans. Like We are in danger, people. We need to turn to the Lord. But they're not. They're misleading people by their optimistic preaching. Oh, friends. Be careful, there's a lot of optimistic preaching that happens in our own city, in our own day. Just because you walk away from church feeling pumped up every Sunday does not mean that you're being led well. Be careful who you listen to. God's description of Israel's leaders is very sad. How did Israel get such leaders? I wonder if the people saw their leaders as God saw them. Sadly, oftentimes, the people choose leaders that seem right in their own eyes. Perhaps the people loved hearing leaders who are like silent dogs and don't bark. After all, silent dogs don't wake you up in the middle of the night. After all, silent dogs are nice to have in your home as pets. Perhaps they love to have such leaders. Has the situation changed today? Has the situation changed today? Ask yourself, if you're visiting with us this morning, Are you looking for a place of worship that is merely encouraging you, but never calling you out when danger is around the corner? If that's what you're looking for, the Lord says, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you have it. But that is not the ideal of what God has for his restored community. A restored community, we saw in this passage, lives anticipating God's salvation, puts aside prior dividing walls, and follows spiritually qualified leaders i pray that as we live and dwell in between the ideal and the actual dear friends here's my assumption we're going to falter once in a while this is not going to be a a squeaky clean ideal journey but we want to learn we want to learn from the mistakes we want to always press on to get closer to the ideal that god has for us and i pray that as we do so we will be a reflection of what it means that God is coming, that God is saving, that God is redeeming, and God is indeed uh, bringing a new kingdom with a new creation. And until that happens, we are a display, a preview, a trailer of that new reality. May we be so for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father. In your word, you have such a wonderful way of bringing about to us the realities, the glories of what you desire for us. And that you also remind us of ways in which we can easily fail, easily be turned aside from the path you have for us. Fathers, we have considered the, the descriptions of a restored community. We pray that we as a congregation, in our relationships, in the way we pursue you and in the way we pursue one another, in the way we commit to you and the way we commit to one another, in the way we open our hearts and our lives to the, to the strangers, to the outcasts, the foreigners, or that we might be a reflection of your heart to restore a people to yourself, to declare your great praises. Father, as we look to ourselves at the ways in which we have sometimes failed, sometimes more than when we wanted to, Father, we pray that you would bind our hearts to you. Enable us to to live out the commandments that you give us so that we may indeed be a reflection of your character and of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Christ for your glory.